Morning, everyone. Okay, thank you, Claire, for reading, and thank you, Niall, for leading us this morning. That is uh, quite the question, isn't it? Most of you will know that I love questions, and often I start with one or two to get us thinking, to get us engaged. But today I didn't need to come up with a question, because in that text that Claire read, there's a huge one. Right at the end, staring us in the face, left hanging. Did you notice it? Who can stand? Sounds important. But it prompts an obvious next question. Who can stand what? Or who can withstand what, depending on your translation? Or who will be left standing after what? Well, the answer is there in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Which provokes another question, whose wrath? Whose wrath are we talking about? It says, their wrath has come. So who's that? Verse before 16. Of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's God's wrath, the one who's seated. And it's the Lamb's wrath. It's Jesus. So there is a great day of God's and the Lamb's wrath, a final and ultimate judgment. And in what John sees, it has come. That's what it says. He's given a glimpse of the future. And the question he asks, or the question that gets asked is, who can stand? Now, if this is true, if there's going to be such a day at some point down the line, then the answer or our answer to that question is critical because not knowing the answer or not having an answer and not knowing who will stand is really worrying. It's a deeply disturbing prospect. So who can stand? Or let me personalize this. Will you stand? going to leave that question hanging as this chapter does. And I'm going to attempt, with a strong emphasis on attempt, to consider the rest of Revelation 6 as opposed to just those last few verses. Now I've got to be upfront about something. There is a real temptation to stop reading Revelation after chapter 5. <laughs> because you see from 6 through to 20 it's tricky. Like, I mean, really tricky. Tricky to interpret. It's complicated. It's demanding. And therefore, lots of people personally, as well as corporately and together in a context like this, they bail out after chapter 5. They call it a day. And I get that. Oh, how I get that. But we are going to keep going. But church, I honestly don't know how long we're going to keep going. And that's me being really honest with you. 
Let me quickly rewind for a second and bring us up to the point where Revelation 6 kicks off. So in chapter 4, John looks and he sees a door standing open in heaven. Thank God there is a door into heaven and it's still open. And in this present reality, because remember that's what it is, this present reality, the critical thing that John sees is, who can remind us what it is? What is the critical thing John sees? First thing he sees is he looks into heaven. He sees a what? A throne. He sees a seat of authority and power and control. And the thing is, it's occupied. God, the holy, the eternal, the worthy, the almighty creator is sitting on it. And therefore, contrary to appearances in the first century or the 21st century, whenever you look around at what is happening, the fact is, the truth is, the present reality is someone's in control. Someone has authority over the entire universe. There is a throne. In the Revelation 5, John sees that the one who's on the throne is holding a scroll in his right hand, which appears to be the scroll of history, the scroll which contains God's plan to restore the world, to rectify what is wrong. His plan to judge, to save, to sort out. But there's a significant problem. No one can open the scroll with its seven seals. No one can open it and set it in motion, so to speak. And so John breaks down. But then he's told there is someone who can open that scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And when John turns around to look at the lion, he sees what? He sees a lamb. Is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he was slain, because he was slaughtered. And by his blood, he has rescued people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And he, the Lamb, is now standing in the center of the throne. He is worthy to open it. And now we're in the chapter 6. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> it's where he, the lamb, begins opening, breaking open the seven seals of the scroll, one by one, providing, get this, providing insight about the past, the present, the future. Now remember, one of the key questions that we need to keep asking as we read this letter is, what does John see next? And as each seal is slit, John sees things, strange things, surreal things, pretty grim things for the most part. But these visions shed light on the circumstances in which John's readers find themselves and in which we ourselves live today. They portray certain horrors of the first century and following right up to and including our day and beyond, including yesterday because they capture, to quote Tim Chester, the turmoil of history. God's purposes in judgment and blessing and restoration and reawakening are unfurled, triggered by the Lamb. They, these things, 
these visions explain what is going on and what is going to go on. And as we've been saying all along, this vision, what John sees, it was given to him and it was to be written down and it was to be read out and read aloud. Why? In order to help specific Christians in a specific place at a specific time to understand their today and their tomorrow. To encourage them to persevere despite the very real pressures, the intense challenges, the great tribulation to protect them from compromise and selling out to another empire, to another throne, to a prevailing culture. And they have this letter, and we have this letter to help us, to form and transform us so that we can know Jesus better and so that we can follow him better. And although it does send our heads spinning, And although it is tricky to get at times, it has been given to us, it has been gifted to us for our benefit, for our growth. And so with all that in mind, let's see what John sees as he slits open these seals. And we are this morning just going to attempt to deal with the first six. The first four are kind of similar because when those seals are broken, four colored horses and their riders bolt out or they come forward. They're often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, a title which may or may not be helpful. And as John watches each seal being opened, each of the four living creatures, that's those four weird creatures with all the eyes, each of the four living creatures in a loud, booming voice like thunders, what it says, they shout, come. And then one by one, the four horses and their riders gallop out. I've made the point during this series that references to the Old Testament are all over Revelation. And here, with these horses, there's definitely some connection to a couple of visions of similar colored horses back in the book of Zechariah. Horses that were sent out to examine things in the four corners of the earth. Here in Revelation These particular horses and their riders are released to disrupt an effect, to unleash events that first century readers would have been familiar with, both from the Old Testament and from their current context, and the impact or their impact then and now in every century has been and is keenly felt as we're about to see. And remember, a key part of what John sees in these visions is to help his readers understand something of what's happening. Understand something of what is going on. And so what does each horse, rider, color, symbolize, or possibly indicate? Well, before I share what is generally the widespread understanding, There's something here that we must not miss. We must not overlook and we cannot play down. Even though it's tough to fully comprehend and process and wrap your head around or even tough to take. Because you see, this scroll contains God's plan for human history. As I said earlier, it contains his kind of blueprint to judge 
and to save and to sort out, to rectify and to restore. And it's Jesus, it's the Lamb who initiates the implementation of this plan. He's the one worthy to open the scroll. And therefore, God is in control of this. There is a throne, as I say. There is a seat of ultimate power and control. So nothing happens that is beyond God. There's nothing happens that's got away from him or blindsides him. These horses and their apparently dire consequences can only operate by authorization from the throne. And in the mystery of things, this divine authorization somehow serves God's plan regarding judgment and salvation and the bringing of the kingdom of heaven to earth. See, if you have a Bible open in front of you, just look at the language that's used here. In terms of the rider of the first horse, his crown was given to him. In terms of the third horse, he is permitted, it says, to take peace from the earth. And the fourth one, he was given authority over a quarter of the earth. Listen, these four things, or the four things these horses and riders appear to symbolize, they are grim. And they have had and they still have a devastating effect on our world and on people's lives, but God has not lost the plot. There is way more going on than we realize. Things are not always as they seem. Things are not only as they seem. Evil is on a leash. It only operates if it's given permission to. God does not do. God does not cause evil. But he does permit it. Even use it. Dark powers are given their head. Plus these events are the consequences of human mess. But God's still on the throne. And his purposes will be accomplished. Justice will prevail. Restoration will take place. All things will be made new. But exactly how? And at what cost? may not always, in fact, rarely make sense. So back to these four horses. The first is white, and its rider, as I say, has a bow and a crown, and it comes out conquering, and therefore many people see this as a picture and symbol of military conquest and war. And the second's red, and it carries a great sword, and it wrecks peace, and it causes people to kill and slaughter each other, and it's a picture of civil unrest and internal tension and conflict. And the third's black, and its rider holds a set of scale in its hands, and given the references to weighing out wheat and barley and money to survive, that here's a picture of scarcity and famine and hunger and poverty. And the fourth horse is a pale color. It's an ashen color. And its rider's given a name, thankfully or helpfully or not helpfully. It's called death. And he's accompanied by Hades, that shadowy place of the dead. It just gets weirder. But you don't have to question, as I say, the symbolism here because it pictures death. And according to what John sees, death is given authority to take out a quarter of the earth by sword and famine and plague and nature. Now, given that that fourth horse is intimately connected to and overlaps with the other three. 
He causes death by all those different means. It clearly shows that these four horses do not come out at separate periods of time or anything of that order. The idea here is that these are the things that accompany the onset of God's purposes for redemption and judgment. As the first four seals are slit, these things unfold. Question, when do these disasters, for want of a better word, begin? When do they take place? Well, they were kicking off in the first century. Those first Christians faced and witnessed all of the above and without stating the blatantly obvious war and violence and food shortages and famine and plague and death have characterized many periods of human history, still do. The 20th century, for example, witnessed more deaths by war and famine than had ever occurred before, and they're still happening. And as the first readers of this letter listened to what John saw and discovered, you can be pretty sure that they would have recognized in the vision of these four horsemen and what they were witnessing and what they were experiencing all around them in the first century, you can be pretty sure they would have recognized an echo or a fulfillment of something Jesus said to his disciples. Years before this, regarding the end of the world. This is Matthew 24. Many of us are familiar with this. And you will hear, this is Jesus speaking to disciples, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, and there will be earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Are these signs of the ends of time, at the, or end times? Absolutely are, but end times, remember, are all time in between the first and second coming of Jesus. The first century Christians were there, and so are we. And as we live out our faith against a backdrop or in the midst of all these terrible realities which affect so many of us and our brothers and sisters all around the world, we retain hope. Why? Because we've been given an insight into the bigger picture. We see that things are not as they seem, or not only as they seem. And in this present world, listen, we're not immune from any of this not ripped out or ripped away from any of this. We're not shocked or surprised by what's happening. Why? Because we're told it will happen. We're told it will happen. And Christians are redeemed and they're rescued. And because we have believed in the Lamb who was slain for us and His blood has purchased us, we will be delivered completely from suffering and death someday, which according to Revelation is soon. But now in this present world, we do have troubles. We do face the harsh realities of what these four horsemen unleash and symbolize. But not in ignorance. Not without awareness. Not without hope that God is somehow working out his purposes for this world and for every single one of us. Don't Fear the sound of pounding hooves. But realize God is on the throne. He is in control. Nothing can separate you, including any of these grim realities, from his love or from his eternal loving presence. And 
the end is nigh. So the first four seals are broken. Let's move on to number five, where John sees and hears something very different. He sees, remember the question we're keeping asking, what does John see next? Well, what does he see next? He sees the souls of Christian martyrs under the altar in heaven. Under the altar in heaven? Which indicates that God sees the death of Christians for their faith as a kind of sacrifice. As a sacred offering of their very lives. It's a powerful image. And the reason these martyrs, these people have died. Although, did you notice the language here? Because it's similar language used of the lamb. I saw under the altar of the souls those who had been slain. Wow. Slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Kind of adds a whole new dimension to the idea of taking up your cross and following Jesus. These Christians that John saw were slain, slaughtered for testifying for the gospel, for following the Lamb despite the risks involved. And as John listens, they cry out to God in prayer, Oh, sovereign Lord, and again, don't miss that. God, we know you're in control of all this. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Again, give God his place. How long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? There's a familiar, there's a profoundly biblical cry. Do you ever cry that? How long, God? How long, they ask God, will you refrain from judging? How long until you demonstrate final judgment and perfect justice? And given that they have been on the receiving end of gross misjudgment and violence and injustice, surely that's a fair, reasonable request and prayer. How long, God, until there is genuine justice? Again, have you ever asked that? Answer, not long. Back to the cry of these martyrs. Because how does God respond in, in what John sees? It's fascinating. It's curious. First off, it would seem at some point each of these souls of those who have been killed, who have been slain for their faith, are given a white robe. It's a symbol of victory and of holiness. Now, don't get too wrapped up in this whole idea. How can a soul be given a white robe? Just don't, just don't go there. And what it says is that God recognizes or affirms and accepts their sacrifice. In the world's eyes, in, the, world, in the, the eyes of those who dwell on the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, those who don't know God, that's, that's what that phrase means. In the eyes of the world, these people are losers. They're failures. They're deluded. They're disposable. But in God's eyes, he sees them very, very differently. And after they've been given a robe of victory, what are they told to do? Look at it with me. They're told to wait. Wow. To rest. Never easy. In any context. 
And what have they to wait for? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they had been. More Christians will be martyred. And then, and only then, will there be final judgment and justice. Again, remember the impact on those reading this letter for the first time. Don't underestimate it. Many of them knew what had happened to key Christian disciples like Timothy and Peter. They knew they had been slain and slaughtered for their faith. And to hear that more Christians were going to die for their faith would have been at one and the same time troubling and empowering. Here was information to spare them on. That they would persevere no matter what and despite the horror, the potential horror of martyrdom, keep going. Because there will be more. But God will honor them. And God knows each of them by name. And for us as a church, this waiting, this resting, so to speak, goes on. And the testimony to the gospel continues or it should. And we must keep speaking the living word of God. And we must keep being prepared for suffering and trouble and tribulation, which means great pressure. Even to the point of death. Now, I know in our context that that maybe doesn't connect. But there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. And I don't know how many of you use Explore Bible Notes that you get from the church. I was reading mine this morning. Don't read them every morning, by the way. That wasn't me just saying it was nice. So good, I've been reading my Bible Notes. I think it was the first time this week, I'll be really honest with you. But I was reading it this morning, and I don't know if you do read it, but there's a paragraph in it that said this. It is estimated that on average over 300 believers die for their faith each day. People are still prepared to die for Jesus. But they go, and I don't really understand all this, they go straight to that heavenly altar where they're clothed in robes of white and where they join with others waiting for final justice, which will come and then eternity in a new heaven and new earth awaits. The cry of the martyrs goes on. Last seal for today. And I haven't forgotten about that question, who can stand, but I'm not sure I'm going to answer it. The opening of the sixth seal, this is verse 12, if you're following, it brings about cosmic disruption, a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll that was rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, this could refer, I know this, this could refer to the fall of empires, Rome included. But it's generally understood that the sixth event in John's sequence of sevens, and remember there are going to be a sequence of sevens, these are seven seals, then we're going to get the seven trumpets, and then we're going to get the seven bowls. Well, I'm not actually sure we are going to get any of those. Uh, but it's generally understood that the sixth in John's sequence of seven usually describes the end of history, the final crisis, the end of the world as we know it, the quote R.E.M. 
the signs that actually precede the actual return of Jesus. Back to Matthew 24 for a second, back to what Jesus said, because he said stuff along similar lines. Like, none of this is new in a sense. And these first Christians who were reading this letter would have known this. Jesus said stuff like this. Here's what Jesus said. Immediately after the tribulation of those, the great pressure of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. At that point, final judgment, perfect justice is imminent. To quote Revelation 6, 17, the great day of their wrath, God's wrath, the Lamb's wrath has come. And for those who have never repented, for those who have never got right with God, for those who have never accepted the Lamb, and there are seven groups of people named here, kings of the earth, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave, free. In other words, anyone. Anyone who isn't a Christian. Well, it would seem, in their distress at the prospect of final judgment and justice, cry out to the mountains and rocks to fall on them or they'll try to hide from God and the Lamb. And whatever that means, there is no doubt they will do anything to avoid the inevitable. And therefore, therefore the question rings out, then, now, forever, who can stand? Who can stand God's irresistible judgment. Will you stand? Next Sunday, we'll discover the answer. But if you don't want to wait that long for whatever reason, just read on or speak to someone who you know who believes they will stand. In the meantime, the band can come back. In the meantime, don't ignore the hooves of the horses or the cries of the martyrs. Your name, God, is a strong and a mighty tower. Let the nations sing it louder.